Let us pray. Silence in us any voice but your own gracious God. And as we gather here in this place, keep us mindful of those who have gone before us, those who are near us and around us, and those who will follow us. They and we have been formed by your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So may that be true now as we engage your word once again for Christ's sake. Amen. Our epistle lesson this morning comes from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church. The first eight verses of the second chapter let us hear God's word. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak, not to please mortals, but to please God, who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, that we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, across the country and around the world today, churches are marking a significant moment. Ohio State's epic victory last night over Penn State. Okay, not really. That's not a bad idea. As you've already heard so eloquently from Becky, 500 years ago this coming Tuesday, a rural German priest named Martin Luther produced 95 theses or disputations against the church. And legend has it that he nailed this list of 95 protests on the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. And so 500 years ago, though things had been bubbling before that, what we call the Protestant Reformation was born. It didn't end in that moment, it began. It's part of an ongoing movement, half of a millennium, that has witnessed an enormous amount of grace and growth and turbulence and controversy in all the cultures where it's unfolded and in the church itself. Now, there are many ways to mark this anniversary, 
And if you have certain Facebook or Twitter feeds, you know what people are doing all across the country and around the world. Sermon series, special educational opportunities, tours to Germany and beyond. Nothing quite so exotic as that, but this afternoon at 3 o'clock here in the chap- here in the sanctuary will be a really unique and I think an important opportunity, an ecumenical service with four denominations who are all direct heirs of this movement, who share something called the formula of agreement. So I hope you'll come for worship, to hear a joint choir, to share communion with our ecumenical sisters and brothers. Now we're in a year of stewardship, and we're also in a year when we mark 190 years of Third Church history. So I was doing a little bit of math. The Protestant movement has encompassed about 25% of Christian history, and Third Church has occupied about 40% of the history of Protestantism, which feels like something worth noting anyway. Now I know that you know that I'm a geek about all of this stuff, and yet I thought it best this morning not to do too much history, but rather to touch on some themes and to ask some questions. How and why the Reformation mattered and matters and will matter still as we move into the future. Rob White read from the book of Deuteronomy the story of the death of Moses the one to whom God spoke from a burning bush. Now to read that text is to be reminded that the movement didn't start with Moses, and it certainly has continued after his death. Judaism is a living tradition, as is Christianity, as is the Protestant and Reform movement within Christianity. So we do lift up names like Martin Luther, like John Calvin. They were catalysts, of course, but they weren't the only leaders. And they're not the only names to remember even now. And in fact, one of the key contributions Luther made to this whole thing was something called the priesthood of all believers, which insists that no one is more special, more sacred, more holy than any other. That's why we do this all around all saints remembrance and we presbyterians as we sometimes have done in this history have taken luther several steps further by insisting through our understanding of baptism that all are called to serve and all are called to lead and all are given gifts that the church is in the best hands when it's in the most hands And we know this still matters a little bit. I don't know if you watched Jeopardy or saw Jeopardy this week, but later in the week, Protestantism was actually a category on Jeopardy. And then the last question in the column was a question about Presbyterianism, elders and church government. Now, sadly to me, at least, none of the contestants got the question right. (laughs) but you can be sure my neighbors on Highland Avenue know the answer now, (laughs) as I was shouting it at the television set. I'm grateful to be a part of the Protestant Reformation movement. We have made important contributions to theology, to our understanding of church, 
we have sought to change the world for the better. But given those labels, Protestant and Reformed, we will be less than honest to say that those contributions have always been perfect or complete, that our beliefs and our actions have caused brokenness and grief within the body of Christ and have contributed negatively to political and cultural life. This faith of ours has led to wonderful things and important accomplishments. It has also contributed to racism and sexism and xenophobia and religious intolerance. In fact, and some of you will remember this better than I, it's only been since Vatican II, since the 1960s, when Reformation Sunday, this Sunday closest to All Saints Day, when we remember Luther's actions, has moved more positively away from a how great is it that we're not Roman Catholic into something more affirming and welcoming. So perhaps we linger for a few moments on each component of that label, Protestant and Reformation, to see where it remains both helpful and problematic before we set our sights on the next 190 years in the next 500 years. What exactly was Luther and so many others protesting? All of this, as I've said, can seem so anti-Catholic until we realize that many of the things Luther was concerned about can now easily be experienced within Protestantism. Stale or misguided theology power exercised poorly in the hands of a few. Now the immediate issue was indulgences, the selling of religious items to make money for the church and to assure Christians of their salvation. That is a theological solution, eternal life sold like a cheap item on a late night infomercial. Somebody joked last week that we should have sold indulgences at Meals with the Meeting. I said, maybe not. <laughs> but Luther, and then Calvin, and so many others, generations passing them, women and men, well-known and otherwise, were protesting what was going on, not just with indulgences, but any time an unfaithful marriage of power and money and bad theology happened. So the solution was to call power out and to put faith more clearly in the hands of the people, as we have done just now. The printing press helped that to happen, of course. Who knows what the Spirit can do when you put the word of God in the hands of the people. And when that happened, what those people discovered, what we continue to discover, is grace. That salvation cannot be earned or bought or given to you by somebody else, but is a gift freely given by a loving and gracious God. No indulgence needed, no priestly intermediary, just faith. So while the Protestant reformers did just that, protested, what they really did was advance a positive understanding of who God was, what faith is, and where we fit in all of that dynamic. 
So from Luther and Germany, the Protestant movement spread in so many directions all around the world. Our stripe is called Presbyterianism because of the way we govern ourselves, but it's sometimes called Reform or Calvinist because of the theological leanings. Calvin in Geneva and others took Luther's Reformation further than what he conceived. Remember that Luther was a rural German priest. Calvin was a French lawyer trained in Paris who then fled to Geneva. Everything happens in a context and in a setting. So here we are with the role of the Bible, the role of ethics, our understanding of God and humanity. All of them reflect a kind of Reformed and Presbyterian and Calvinist shade within this broader Protestant palette. Calvin took Luther's affirmation of grace and drilled down, insisting even more fully on an understanding of the sovereignty of God that meant blurred lines and permeable walls between church and state, between faith and public life. God was the God of the whole world and not just the churchy part of it. Now the good news is that affirmation led to things like the American Revolution and the Industrial Revolution. The bad news is it gave things like apartheid and slavery traction, Presbyterian rationale. And so we need to be wide-eyed about both, the good and the bad, the positive and negative contributions we have made to church history and to world history. We have led much change in church and culture. But some of the change we've led has addressed problems we created. Hence our name and our ongoing invitation, Protestant and Reform. What needs protesting and what needs reforming? Jill Duffield writes in the Presbyterian Outlook, Reformation Sunday at its theological best ought to chasten our pride and heighten our self-examination as we go about being Christ's disciples in the 21st century. Reformation Sunday calls us to remember that God is always doing a new thing, but we do not always perceive it. Jill writes, God's salvation story is just that, God's. Our time is merely a chapter in a narrative we did not conceive nor create. Our limited vision calls us to humility and prayer as we seek to discern what is essential and not, what must change and what must remain if we are to be faithful. If indeed Reformation never ends, what must die for God's resurrection power to reign? What needs protesting? And what needs reforming? Well, we start by looking in the mirror and then move outward. How do we, you and I, understand that grace claims us? Not our credentials, not our financial worth, not status of any kind. When church or culture defines your worth, protest that. 
When stale or misguided theology leads you to self-understanding that doesn't make sense or teaches you that God is other than loving and just and compassionate, protest that. When the church behaves in a way that excludes or rationalizes or tamps down, protest that. And when the culture continues to discriminate based on gender or race or who you love or what you believe, by all means protest that and insist that the church lead that protest. When we've been complicit, we simply must confess and repent so then we can lead in the Reformation. All of which is to say that this must be rooted in our tradition. That's why we mark anniversaries like this, but we can't be hamstrung by tradition. Remember this phrase, Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda. The church reformed and always to be reformed, always to be reformed. We are the subjects of reform. And if reformation never happens, then there's no abolition, there's no women's ordination, there's no marriage equality. God is not done with us yet. Any of us, or all of us together, which is really the heart of the anniversary we mark, God is not done with us yet. As we are called to continue to reform imperfect people, and imperfect institutions so we can reform a broken and fearful world. The New Yorker writer Joan Acasella writes that Luther's goal was not to usher in modernity, but simply to make religion religious again. I like that. That seems to be a vision we all can embrace, to make religion religious again to claim the best of our beliefs and behaviors and to leave behind what needs discarding, to stand on the shoulders of giants, imperfect giants to be sure, and to realize at the same time that we are all given the gifts and calling and vocation of protesters and reformers, to craft our own list and nail it to whatever door that it needs nailing to, to live into the radical promises of God's sovereignty and grace, and by so doing, to transform the church and to change the world. To see God's face and to look, as Moses did, into the promised land and to be blessed. Amen.